Podcast as always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is March the 5th, 2021. Uh, this is episode 2836 of the Survival Podcast, and here it comes a big one. Ain't done it for a while. It's Friday! 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 That's right, it is time for the Monster Show of the Week, the Expert Council QA. I have a great Uh, cross-section of the expert council on a wide variety of subjects. We have expiration dates on meds, EpiPens, and more with old Doc Bones. We have a conversation, a conversion of degraded pasture into commercial perennial asparagus production from Jeff Lawton, probably the premier permaculture designer in the world, will be weighing in on that. Planning and executing educational road trips for homeschool families with Mike and Sue LaPreeze, who are on one hell of a road trip right now, so it's a great topic for them to talk about. Choosing a bench vice. I'm stoked that this was a question, because I'm right now building this awesome workbench out in my shop with my grandson, and uh, I need a bench vice. I flat out need a bench vice, and I didn't know how far from grace the vice has fallen. Like everything, not everything, a lot of things are complete and total garbage. And I just, after listening to this, in my head, I keep seeing this vice that I used, you know, as a kid, as a teenager, all the way up till I joined the Army on my grandfather's workbench in our shanty in Pennsylvania. And I know it's probably still sitting there rusty and my old man's not taking care of it. I just wish it was here. And I, I don't know that I'll ever find one like that. But uh, there are some decent modern bench vices, and Tim will tell you a couple of them. Uh, we have a conversation on restoring degraded and abused pasture as a leaseholder grazing cattle from Darby Simpson. Who else? What is the deal with hereditary high cholesterol and what dietary regime works best for it? Dr. Ken Berry. And can some plants that we think of as annuals produce almost perpetually if we can get them through the winter. Are they really annuals? Are they actually perennials? Is there a limit to this? Um, a good buddy of mine, Dr. John, up in the Dakotas, asked this question. I had to actually send it back and say, I'll clarify this for me. I, I've got it understood now. And I think this is a great one to take a look at. And the answer to it is, it depends. You know, it's my favorite answer. Anyway, um, Before we dig into this, I want to start out with a quote of the day. And I, I, I don't think I'll be very frequently quoting Natalie Portman. But I've tried to explain this to people over the years because sometimes I'll quote somebody like, I hate that person. I, I'm talking about one smart thing they said. I, I'm a big bull. And I don't really know anything about Natalie Portman other than I know she's an actress. That probably means she's part of the woke left. Maybe. And I don't want to judge somebody that I don't know. But odds are, right? Um, but I found this quote on Brainy Quote, and I was like, yeah, I really love this quote. She said, I don't love studying. I hate studying. I like learning. Learning is beautiful. Man, that is what I have dedicated 13 years of my life to now. Well, it'll be 13 years this June. 13 years of survival podcast. Learning. I don't think anybody like listens to this and feels like, I'm studying, man. See, studying is I'm trying to memorize information so I can regurgitate it in some form that will let me pass a test and tick a box. Learning is I am exposing myself to information so that I can freaking do stuff. And man, if you, if you think about it, our entire system of education is built on studying. How many times have you heard kids say that? When you were a kid, how many times did I have to study, I have to study, I have to study, I have to study? If you're actually learning, you shouldn't have to study that much. Now, there is a place for this. I tell my grandson this. Like, because he has a few of his times tables, he's still kind of having trouble memorizing and whatever. It's like, this is the stuff you have to study, and you have to memorize it, and then you learn how to use it. So a couple days ago, I, or last week, I guess it was, I had Jeff Lawton on the show. And we talked about the fact that, you know, he's having to teach basic math and permaculture design courses because people can't do things like calculate the rainfall on a roof 
to collection in gallons. They can't, can't calculate the surface area and then determine how much water you're collecting without getting specific and letting it be like a back of the napkin off the cuff, a half a gallon per inch. I taught my grandson how to do that in like 60 seconds. And I just started giving him different roof dimensions. And in his head, he's going, oh, that would be 400 gallons. He's 10. All right. You have to study so that when somebody tells you the roof is, you know, eight foot by 12 foot, you can do eight times 12. And that's the thing that I think is missing so much in education today, that the things that we do need people to memorize, we don't do a good job of explaining the, the practical application of that memorization. And then on top of it, 90% of the shit they memorize is completely useless to them and they'll never use it ever again. And this is coming from a dude that remembers most of it because of the way my memory works. I'm one of these people, it's not an identic memory. But when I hear something, if I have the least bit of interest in it, I can probably regurgitate it to you almost word for word 10 years later. And I would say as we age, you lose some of that ability, and I have. When I was a kid in school, I could literally sit down read the book in a week, the entire textbook for an entire course, and then just pass all the tests and never even pay attention in class ever again. And I still think most of it was useless. So how do you think people that don't have that gift feel about it? They probably think they hate studying. But I don't just think that people like learning. I think that everybody loves learning as long as they love what they're learning about. And that's the key in being a teacher, in my opinion, is to tap into the things that your students want to learn and then enable that learning rather than force training upon them. And let's be honest, our school system is based on training mostly and teaching a little. It is designed to create citizens. And I think a lot of people over the years have decided that's okay. Citizenship. We even grade kids on citizenship like in grade school and whatever. I don't want citizens. I want human beings that are fully capable of looking after themselves and taking responsibility for themselves and that of their children with a grounding in ethics. Because I trust that if you give people that, you don't need to train them as citizens. Because the natural state of the human being is a pretty damn good state. The problems we have with humanity are much like the problems that we have with farming and forestry and nature. It is not that those systems in of themselves or being a human being is a flawed state. It's that we separate it from what the natural state is. And whenever you do that with any system, you end up with problems. I don't love studying. I hate studying. I like learning. Learning is beautiful. Natalie Portman. And if I said anything wrong about Natalie Portman today, I'm sorry. I don't know the first thing about her other than I think she's an actress. All right. Uh, so with that, let's lead on into the learning today. Let's talk about expiration dates on medications and EpiPens and stuff like that with old Doc Bones. Hey, wake up. <laughs> Hi, I'm Joe Alden, MD of doomandbloom.net with over a thousand articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. Together with my wife, Amy Alden, an advanced registered nurse practitioner, we're the authors of The Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings, and the designers of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Long ago, one of my first articles about preparedness was on expiration dates. What are they and what do they mean for the average person who has a medicine that is no longer fresh? You'll read all sorts of stuff about how dangerous drugs become once they pass the magical date on the bottle. But what actually does happen? Does it still work? Does it become poisonous? Do you grow a horn in the middle of your forehead? Before I start, I want people to know that in normal times, yes, you should definitely use drugs that aren't expired and call your healthcare provider to refill them as prescribed. My focus, however, is medical preparedness for major disasters and long-term survival. That's a whole different ballgame, and throwing away medicine as soon as it expires may leave you without a means of curing infections 
if you're thrown off the grid. What are expiration dates? Expiration dates were first mandated in the U.S. in 1979, and they represent the last day that a pharmaceutical company will guarantee that their drug is at 100% strength, something we call potency. In the grand majority of cases, these medicines do not become toxic after the expiration date. They don't become poisonous, and if you take a pill the month after it expires, it's unlikely you turn green or grow feathers, unless you're a parrot, that is. In many cases, drugs in pill, powder, or capsule form will be 100% potent for years after their expiration date. Well, that's just outrageous, Dr. Bones. You're just an old country doctor. How can you say something like this? Because the government and the evidence agree. As a matter of fact, a recent article in Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, the Journal of the Wilderness Medical Society, of which I'm a member, tested several expired drugs in a remote environment, out at sea as a matter of fact, and found them, even though they were stored at high temperatures, to be safe and effective. So there's more and more evidence of this over time. How did we figure this out? Well, the U.S. has a national emergency medical response, and the Department of Defense and other federal agencies stockpile millions of doses of various medicines used in emergency settings. In the past, when those drugs expired, they revved up the forklifts and threw out tens of millions of dollars worth of drugs. Well, as you can imagine, this gets to be pretty expensive. So a study was performed called the Shelf Life Extension Program, SLEP, something that I first wrote about very many years ago, actually. This program tested 122 drugs used in emergency settings and found that most medicines, as long as they're in pill or capsule form, were still effective after their expiration dates, sometimes for years. As such, I recommend not throwing them away, but instead making them part of your survival medical storage. Longevity of a drug, by the way, was not the case if in liquid form. These lost potency quickly after their expiration dates, so are not useful for long-term survival settings. This includes insulin, pediatric antibiotic elixirs, and others. A notable exception was expired EpiPens. Studies found that most retain some potency even three years or four years after their expiration date, some up to 80%. The manufacturer even states that if you have an EpiPen, and that's all you have, and it's expired, you should use it. But be aware that it may not be as effective. You may need an additional dose. The government didn't change their system as a result of the bombshell shelf life extension program data, and there are still expiration dates on your medicine bottles. What the authorities do instead is put out what are called emergency use authorizations for certain drugs as needed. Under Section 564 of the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, the FDA may allow unapproved, such as expired, medical products or unapproved uses of approved medical products when there are no adequate approved or available alternatives. So they gave a five-year extension for the antiviral drug Tamiflu during the 2009 swine flu epidemic. They also proclaimed an emergency use authorization for the antibiotic doxycycline a few years ago because of concerns about anthrax. Despite this, you're going to see reports that say that all medicines are dangerous when expired should be tossed. These opinions are perfectly reasonable in normal times, but if you're watching this video, you're probably concerned about the future. You might even be the person that would end up medically responsible in situations where help is not on the way. You're exactly who I want to talk to. If a true long-term disaster occurs, you may one day have to make a decision about whether or not to use an expired medication. Let's say a loved one is fading from an infection, you're off the grid, something bad has happened, and there's little or no hope of getting to modern medical care. You have an expired bottle of antibiotics. Are you going to use the expired drug to save a life? That's your call. But I know what I'd do. In a true disaster, the issues that face the medically responsible will be very basic. What is the problem? Do I have medicine that will treat it? Could this medicine, although it has expired, possibly save a life? When it comes down to it, can you really choose to not use it because it may possibly have side effects or maybe not be as strong? Let's hope it never gets to that. But you have to look at it from a survival mindset. Hoping for the best while preparing for the worst isn't a bad strategy to deal with the uncertain future. This is Joe Alden, MD, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. And hey, don't forget to fill those holes in your medical storage by checking out Nurse Amy's entire line of medical kits, books, and more at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So my real quick add-on to that one before we go to our next one, I think he's underselling 
how safe and how effective this is. I've read the actual government document that Bone circulated for a while that mysteriously disappeared for the Internet uh, about 10 years ago, where they actually tested this uh, on a variety of medications. And the only thing, I'm going to say it just flat out, because I'm not a medical doctor who could have my license pulled, right? The only thing that I've ever seen that any research has ever proven that happens to medication is its efficacy declines. So you might have to give a little more. There is nothing, there is not a shred of research that shows you will ever have an adverse reaction to taking an older medication that you would not have had anyway had you taken a brand new version of the medication. It's all hype and it's all bullshit and there is no reason to discard medications that are past their expiration date if they are medications that may be useful to you in the future in my layman's opinion that said let's go on to something i promise you diversity totally different how about taking degraded landscape from kind of like a pseudo pasture grass weedy nasty mess into main high-end scale asparagus production for perennial production jeff lawton take it away Hi, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia and uh, I have a question here about uh, an area of pasture and hay uh, that uh, a listener wants to put into a perennial uh, garden with uh, varieties of uh, asparagus. He wants to kill off the grasses and get it in control in the spring and summer and do a late fall planting of um, asparagus So, uh, and bring in cardboard and mulch to uh, mulch it over. Um, is considering putting down plastic or, or landscape fabrics to kill the, the grass over summer and um, asking what I would do. Well, this is what I would do. Um, I'd try and improve the ground um, with uh, cover crops and condition the soil first and I'd take control by first uh, um, cutting all the grass as low as I could um, and uh, you could break that off um, or drag it off as you cut it and then I'd deep rip it um, on contour, usually um, the same way I'd planned it out in the end. So I'd, I'd, I'd deep rip it, which would relieve any compaction in the soil, and then I'd run over it with a rotary hoe and mm-hmm. just turn over the top um, three, three to four inches, um, which will which will really greatly disfavour the grasses and the, uh, the hay grasses and pasture grasses in that area. Um, then I'd come in straight away, and I'd um, I'd put down a, a cover crop four times the recommended density of planting. Usually it would be a legume. Um, often in summer it's uh, something like uh, uh, cowpea. Um, you, you could put in a carbon crop at the same time, uh, but you don't necessarily have to. Um, but um, the main thing you need is a really vigorous uh, green manure crop and you need to overseed it. So I just throw that down um, on the uh, rotary hoed soil and then I'd put a very thin scatter in a mulch and you'd have to break up biscuits of mulch in the, in the bales and it's uh, extremely thin. It's uh, one bale of straw to 40 square metres. Now if I'm deep mulching a garden, I'm putting it down at 1.5 square metres to a bale. So one bale covers 1.5 square metres. So you can imagine how, how thin one bale over 40 square metres is. It just covers the ground so you can't quite see the soil. But if you give it the slightest tickle with your finger, fingertips, you can see the soil again. It's just enough to, to, to hold extra moisture over the seed so that it germinates easier um, without too much irrigation. And um, it covers the soil up from, from, from critters and birds while it does germinate. But it's not too much to restrict the germination. So it's a bit like a hydromulch, if you know what a hydromulch is like. Um, which is often used in America to spray on lawns, but it's a manual version of that. I do this in many ways, but it's a great way to get a, uh, a, a new garden started. So that cover crop, if you plant it on a new area, you want to get the inoculant for it. So you need to go to the uh, farm supplies because there's use an agricultural seed, then it's cheaper uh, by weight to purchase. won't be an expensive purchase because it's always cheaper if the farmers are using it. So you're going to get a bulk bag and um, get enough inoculant so you can inoculate the seed. Now, you, you, the small area you're doing, you're going to have to buy more inoculant than you need, but just put plenty of it with the seed. This will add the bacteria. The inoculant adds the living bacteria to the seed, so the bacteria are there to help the plant fix nitrogen, 
form all the nodules and really break the soil up with vigorous roots. So you've really conditioned the soil. You've got a deep rip going through first. You disfavoured the hay in the grasses. Then you quickly move straight in. Don't leave it too long. Go straight in and uh, put in your cover crop seed with the inoculant on it. Then a very thin scatter in the mulch. Irrigate if you can or try and do it before rain. But as soon as there's rain, that cover crop's going to start germinating and up it'll come and totally dominate that space. Now it'll die off come the autumn anyway, but you can slash it and use it part, as part of your mulch for your asparagus then. So you've got your crop in your crop area in really good condition and um, all those, um, all that extra green manure mulch will be cut from the top, but it'll leave all the lovely roots in position, which will be beautiful dendritic patterns and get a good start on your perennial asparagus going from there on in. So, um, I, I, I probably, you'd probably be able to pull it off without the cardboard then. You could just deep mulch because you'll be in pretty much control. But if you want to um, cardboard the rows that the asparagus in, you probably don't have to cardboard the inter row. Uh, asparagus will take off and start dominating the system for you, and you'll be away. There you go. Next up, let's talk about a great American pastime and tradition, the road trip. Now, there's road trips that are like a day trip, and it's like you and your buddies when you were in high school and you were bored and you went to another town to cruise around and look for girls and listen to hard rock. Oh, wait, that's my past. Anyway, um, and then there's real road trips where you're actually going somewhere and you're spending some time on the road and you're kind of in the tourist mode, and that's kind of where we're coming from today with this. And it is a fantastic way to see America. And one of the beautiful things about America is it's such a large, diverse country where we have freedom of travel, mostly COVID, um, from sea to shining sea. And even when there's crap going on like COVID, um, there's also almost always the times since we live in a republic where there's places with no restrictions, lax restrictions, or they got restrictions, but no one gives two, two shits about it, right? And so that means you can go to one of those places. Now, what if you could do that? Take your kids with you. And combine the road trip with your education. It turns out you can, and Mike and Sue LaPreeze will tell you about that today. This is Michael and Sue LaPreeze with today's question for the expert counsel from Christine in Ohio. Christine asks, what advice do you have for making the most out of road trip vacations? We have two kids, 7 and 11, both boys. We've been thinking of starting to go on longer trips now that the kids have a bit more tolerance for it. We homeschool and want to turn these into learning adventures. How would you go about finding opportunities if you just picked a place on a map and said, okay, we're going to blank for a week. Keep it both fun and educational. So you may have heard that adventure is our favorite thing. And the number one reason that I homeschool is because I never understood why we had to go to school because my mom made all those weekends and holidays and summers so fun that school was an incredibly boring place. And right now during COVID and all this stupidness, it's super important to take your kids out and see the world. And I know it's a little complicated. The hours have changed. You've got to make reservations. But do it because it's worth it. Um, it's a lot of effort, I understand, but it's not good to just stay home by yourself. So the first thing I would talk about is I don't know if everybody remembers, if you've ever seen a video, it's a professor talking about uh, putting items into a jar. He's got rocks and pebbles and sand and some water. And he's like, how do you get it all in the jar? And we would say, you get it all in the jar, you start with the big rocks first. So you put the big rocks in. So our big rocks are a map, a wallet, and a calendar. So the map is who or where you're going. And families are a priority. So we generally go based on the location and what's next. And we get that on the map. Then we use a number of apps now. One's Campendium. We have a little travel trailer, so we take that. Campendium, Gas Buddy, and then a thing called Harvest Host, where you get to visit farms and um, wineries and breweries and stuff as you travel. So we look at that first. Where are we going? And then we look at the wallet. <laughs> <laughs> so Sue has a spreadsheet, and she puts everything in there, lodging, events, ideas, all these things, and she'll come back with a $30,000 budget for a two-week adventure. <laughs> And then I go, okay, so what haven't we done before? And we look at things like um, uh, we were in Durango. We have a son and, and daughter-in-law with two grandkids that live in Durango, Colorado. And so we took the Durango Silverton train. And that used our budget for, for most of it. Yeah, that was, a, that, was a, that was a big item for a big ticket item. 
Uh, and then we go to national and state parks. Uh, fortunately for me, I'm a senior citizen, so we have a, <laughs> a lifetime national park pass. Um, and we do things with the kids, the Junior Ranger Program. Uh, there's websites with information on lots of learning opportunities within the state and uh, national parks. And then there's a thing called the Museum Reciprocity, so North American Reciprocal Museum Association. If you belong to a museum, a local museum, check that out because a lot of museums throughout the country are part of that program and your membership will apply to other places or you'll get a significant discount to go. Yeah, so either free at the other museum or a huge discount. We're times seven or eight people when we travel, so that's a lot. So then we look at the calendar. What's the weather at the location? Now, we used to have to include Michael's work in the calendar, but he's retired. So what we have to do now is consider the kids' activities in our homeschool community and what's going on when we decide to travel. Uh, yeah, and then there are other things. So, so there are in-car opportunities as well for us. Um, Audible. Uh, Wait, there's LibriVox. It's a free audio. Any book before 1924 up to about 1950, you'll find some really good free audibles on that. Yeah, we're making that transition. Yeah. Uh, but like on our, on our last trip, we read a, a, a Louis L'Amour book. Um, I said read. We were listening to it. Uh, Riley's Luck. Uh, and, and some other books that were uh, around the area we're in. So as we're listening to the books and we're hearing the locations, the kids have seen those locations. So fun. It's very exciting. Okay, so our, li- we, our little kids have personal devices that we let them have for an hour when we're in the car, and we try to schedule that where we know there's not going to be any good, beautiful mountains to see. It's like this is the same desert we're going to be traveling through all day. So you can have an hour on a Kindle or a personal device. But a lot of them, we like their eyes out the window, so they're actually seeing. And listening to the book together so we can talk about it. So then there's the little rocks, and those are all the educational concepts. So it's hard to do school on the road if you have family or friends in the location you're visiting because everybody wants to visit. And with a high school kid, if you're connected to a program, you may have to say, hey, you've got three hours of school to do today. You just got to do it. Or... We can take a break from our usual school and learn about the formation of the Grand Canyon or the Bortle Dark Sky Scale. We were at Copper Break State Park just for one night. We set up our telescope, and these old guys came over like, hey, looks like you need some help. And they were right. We needed help. But we learned all kinds of stuff about our telescope, and they had these cool night vision goggles to see all kinds of things. It was really sweet. Campers are really fun. So in our next unit, we're studying Greece, so that dark sky is going to be a really important part of all of our camping trips. And then you've got the little bits of sand. Those are being ready to learn. Have printable activities and coloring pages that you get off all of these websites. Okay, the next... Is the water, and that would be the serendipitous stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are things that you can't plan for. They just happen. Uh, One of our sons, Nicholas... um, Snow on the ground, walking down the road. Uh, we were at our son's house, and we are walking down the road, and there happens to be a very large horse that comes up to the fence. And Nicholas got to touch its nose and its warm breath that came out onto his hands. And for him, that was the entire vacation. Yes. <laughs> Seeing the horse, touching the soft nose of the horse, feeling its breath, that just blew him away. If you ask him what his favorite part of the vacation, this was an 18-day trip. That was it. Not the $75 train ticket. Not the $75 train ticket. It was petting the horse and having it breathe on him. And then Jack, our one son, when he was four years old, we were at the Liberty Bell early one Monday morning, and there's a park police guarding the bell, and our four-year-old says, can I look under the bell? And the park ranger, he said yes. So we laid down and we kind of scooted under the rope It's not exciting, trust me, but we got to do it because nobody was there. And that's the other thing about planning your vacations and trips if you're homeschooling. When everybody else is in school and nothing is crowded, the people there enjoy the kids when it's not a big crowd, when it's just one kid, and it's really fun. Well, for us, we go, we're a big crowd. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so adventure is our favorite thing, and we could go on forever. Yeah. Um, But... This has been Michael and Sue LaPreeze reminding you, put the big rocks in first when planning those exciting vacations. Next up, I have a question for Tim Toolman Cook. 
from Piker, I mean, I'm sorry, John Dowie. And uh, it's a great question, and it's on vices. And apparently John destroyed his vice. And if you've ever met John, he looks like a guy that might destroy a vice. Um, but I didn't realize that vices had fallen again so far from grace. But there are some decent vices out there still. And uh, there's also opportunity to find, you know, kind of heirloom vices and do some restoration on them with that. And, and John also wanted a vice that was made in America or maybe Canada. And Tim weighs in on that. And I think... I'm going to go with his number one recommendation for the vice that I need for my new workshop as well. Hey guys, Toolman Tim back here from toolmantim.co where we build business, create community, find freedom and share success. Back to answer another question for the expert council. And this week question comes from Mr. John Dowie in the TSP community. He says, Hey Tim, I'm in the market for a moderate use homeowner's shop grade vice. My $40 one from Lowe's was destroyed easily. Also, I've been on a buy as local as possible kick with everything, so bonus points for a quality vice for under $100 made in the USA. I suppose Canada would be okay too. Thanks. So I got to start out with saying that I have the same problem with vices. The ones I've bought up here from a big box store called Canadian Tire have not been timproof. <laughs> There's a reason we locally call the store Crappy Tire. I honestly think that almost all of the low-end store brands are made from the same cheap, imported, highly brittle steel. The first tip I can offer is spend some time looking at thrift shops, second-hand stores, and most importantly, and probably your best chance at finding something, is that's at estate sales or auctions. A good vice used to be a buy-it-for-life item, and it still can be if you look for the right product and are willing to spend a bit. My grandfather ran a generator and alternator shop for many decades and had two old vices on his bench there where the handles had a bit of a bend to them. The old ones were certainly designed beefy enough that the handle would bend long before the frame would ever crack. I always said that while they tended to make things stronger years ago, and while in some instances that is true, they tended not to use recycled uh, metals and materials as often, we also only have the items left that were made to last. So any of the cheap ones made years ago have already long worn out. So if you can get a quality used one from decades ago, this may be your best bang for your buck. Now, if that isn't an option or if there isn't anything available around you, let's take a look at what might be out there now. So first tip I would say is buy as much vice as you can afford. The more metal and the heavier the vice, all things other being equal, the less likely it is to break. I tend to look for a vice that doesn't have a swivel base because it is just one more area of movement that I don't want in a vice. But almost all the sub $100 ones do have the swivel base, so don't treat that as a deal breaker. So, if you're looking for a sub $100 bench vice, uh, Yoast seems to be the best company to go with. They have a beautiful 5-inch bench pipe combination vice for $99.99 on Amazon, and it's made in the USA. Its model number is 750E. The other company that offers vices made in the USA that are close to your price range is the Wilton. They offer a 6-inch swivel bench vice for around 120 US. And looking on Camel, 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 it appears to come on sale quite often for 100 bucks or a little less. And the model number for that is 11106. I'll send both links of these items to Jack so he can put them in the show notes. Home Depot also seems to carry a full line of Yoast and Wilton's vices, with their prices trending just a tad bit higher. Lowe's has them listed on their website, but they don't show prices, which is never a good sign. And I personally have been in a market for a better bench vice for a long time because I broke my cheap imported one about a year ago, and I haven't replaced it yet. You got me thinking about pulling the trigger on a Yoast one now, as the reviews are top-notch. Whatever you decide to go with, follow up with me. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And if a person's lucky enough to find an old vintage vice that is rusty and seized up, it would be a great opportunity to restore an antique and get top-notch quality for a lot lower price. So thanks again, guys. Keep the questions coming. Whether you got them about tools or starting a small business, life in the cold, landscaping, handyman stuff, and so much more, send them in to Jack, and I will get them answered for you. If you want to follow up directly with me, you can email me at the therealtimcook at gmail.com or go by toolmantim.co that's toolmantim.co and check out my social media links 
and friend me over there, and we can talk from there as well. They're all listed at the bottom at uh, toolmantim.co. Finally, if you haven't gone by to the YouTube channel lately, we're on the push to get to a 1,000 subscribers. So if you don't mind running by and giving me a follow, that would be great. And as always, check out our four videos a week, Money Making Minute Monday, Tool Time Tool Review Wednesday, Growing Your Business Friday, and my Odyssey exclusive weekend workshop on Saturday. So as always, guys, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. Yeah, so I did some of my uh, my own research here, and it seems like the general consensus without you know, buying something that's $400 made out of, you know, Swedish tool steel or something like that. The Deost is, is pretty much the way to go. And there is a ton of information out there about how bad vices are, are made today. Uh, and one thing I, I definitely would stay away from, and I do buy some tools from this company, but it seems like their vices are beyond garbage, is Harbor Freight. Uh, one of the YouTubers I listened to that reviewed several different vices had the Harbor Freight ones. And he said, they feel hollow. Now, I don't think they actually were, but he's like, is that a good term for a tool made out of cast iron to feel hollow? I don't think so, and I, I would have to agree. Uh, with that, let's, now we already talked about kind of going from pasture to perennial produ production of a dilapidated pasture. What if you have a dilapidated pasture and you want to make it far more, uh, far more productive and you want to do it with cattle? You want to be, over time, be able to increase your stocking density. Key is you don't have no money, or you don't have much money. And so you want access to land. So being smart and realizing that just like rich people, we want to control things, not necessarily own them, you go find somebody to lease you land at a fraction of what it would cost to buy it. They get some money, and they don't have to do nothing. You can make that land extremely productive. You can create a great long-term relationship. But there's also some things that you really need to do to make sure that you're protecting yourself in the long term with leases and how they're drafted. With that, I'll tell you a guy that knows a little bit about things like that. That would be Darby Simpson. And Darby has a great answer to this question. Hey there, everyone. Darby Simpson with Grass-Fed Life. Back to answer another question that came in. This time regarding leasing some pasture, we've got an email that uh, comes in from Chris, and Chris says that he's in the process of signing a five-year lease on 21 acres of pasture. He notes that there's no irrigation for the property, and it has been overgrazed for some number of years, so building up and restoring the soil will be priority number one. Uh, with that in mind, he wants to know what are the critical purchases that he needs to make to begin this process. Uh, he is also reading uh, No Risk Ranching by Greg Judy, along with some books from some other graziers out there. And his plan is to use MIG, that stands for Management Intensive Grazing, to the uninitiated, uh, practices for cattle, and then he wants to follow them with poultry. Says he'll be purchasing electric fencing to restrict and move the herd as the grass dictates. Um, Chris also mentions he's considering maybe using a manure spreader uh, to put some uh, uh, stuff out there from the horses to utilize their manure and help the renewal process. He's not sure how much that would actually help. Any thoughts or suggestions are greatly appreciated. Well, Chris, okay, so you, the the first thing I want to I want to note here is you didn't tell me where you're from, so I don't know what area of the country you're in. That could greatly change my suggestions and my advice, but uh, you're on the right path. By and large, you're on the right path. Um, depending on what the the ground looked like. There are a number of different things we we uh, could do. Now, as far as spreading uh, horse manure or anything else out there, should you do that? Yes. Should you go buy a manure spreader to do it? No. Should you find one to borrow or rent cheaply? Absolutely. Or maybe even pay somebody else to do it. Um, anything like that that you can put out there. If this pasture looks as bad as, as you described, Anything we can do to get fertility out there is going to be helpful. If you could find old hay bales and unroll them and put them out there, that would be helpful. Now, you're, you're leasing this, so the first thing you need to do is you need to make sure that you have got a rock-solid lease 
in place. And Greg Judy is the resource to start with there. One of his books, he goes into great detail, great depth about how to write leases, what to put in there, what to make sure is not in there. I remember one story he told me one time about uh, when he was first starting out, he leased some ground and he put up temporary fencing. And when his lease expired, he went to take the fence down and the guy said, no, 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 that's my fence. And Greg said, no, it's mine. And he said, well, the, the lease doesn't say that you get to take anything with you. So you got to leave it there. So make sure that anything you put up in terms of infrastructure you note that that's yours and if you know the lease ends you can take it with you so that's number one um, depending on the region of the country you're in uh, I I would look into planting some annuals um, getting a drill renting a drill borrowing a tractor hiring a tractor out whatever start with your county soil and water conservation district they may have some tools you can rent or borrow or they may be able to point you towards people that you can network with and or hire out but think about putting some grazing annuals out there just to get something on the ground to get it covered to give the animals something to eat additional infrastructure obviously you've got to have decent external fence i think you go semi permanent here You know, I like the idea of like using T-posts, and uh, you can you can use wire around that. It could be poly braid. That's expensive. You could look at using aluminum wire. Uh, the Kenco Fence Company sells a kit uh, that's basically uh, some plastic pieces that you put together on a standard T-post, and you can make H braces and double H braces and corner braces out of T-posts, and um, I've talked with some guys that have used it. It works really well. And it, 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 there's a little bit of a cost there, but it's not bad. Uh, get some good quality external fence up. Uh, also, make sure you have insurance. Because if your cow gets out of that fence and gets onto the highway, guess who's liable? You. Make sure you've got some insurance to cover that. I, I'd go with three, maybe four strands external. Then subdivide it using the same method. Uh, but you only need maybe two wires if you want to subdivide big swaths then you use step in posts and reels and poly wire to subdivide your daily move paddocks um, you note that there's no irrigation on this that tells me maybe you're in a dry climate I don't know um, I, I live in Indiana we get over 40 45 inches of rain a year irrigating so far as this thing from my mind most times um, But as far as a watering system, we can accomplish this with, with garden hose. You, you go by 100-foot sections of garden hose, you get what's called a splitter valve, a Y valve. That way you can connect your hoses together, but then every 100 feet or every 200 feet or wherever you want to put these in, you've got a place to hook up a tank, a watering tank, which is a poly tub with a $15 float valve, Uh, I use Dare products, the aluminum body, and a 15, 20, 25-foot hose. Boom. That's all you need for watering. Um, that's your basic infrastructure. Now, again, back to irrigation. I don't know anything about that. That's that's out of my space. I, you know, I guess perhaps you could talk with NRCS about once you have animals on the land, you might be able to get a grant to do some irrigation. Um, just know... That when you lease land, if you if you get some NRCS money, that comes with a 1099, and that 1099 does not go to Chris; it goes to the landowner. He'll have to sign off on that, figuratively and literally. He'll have to sign off on that with the NRCS. He might be open to it. Maybe he wants some permanent irrigation. Maybe he wants some permanent fence. Uh, maybe he wants permanent pasture installed. These are all things you can talk with your NRCS agent about. Um, there's a lot of good programs out there. I think it's a pretty good organization as far as government organizations go. I've had really good success and experiences with my local NRCS office. They've helped us a ton to rehabilitate this land. That was destroyed by conventional farming practices for 100 years. Um That's really my biggest thoughts about what you can do. Once you do these things, you, you add those external sources out there, you start doing daily 
rotation. If you want to put birds out there, the birds are going to cover a very small area, but their manure is very, very beneficial. You're going to rehabilitate this land. I, I would say in three years you'll be able to double your stocking capacity. That's been my experience here going from burned out row crop, sub 1% organic matter in the soil, to three years later we double our, our stocking density and our, our organic matter is over 3%. Uh, one last thing I want to mention here. You noted you didn't have money to go start farming, and this is something I talk a lot about. I don't care if you don't have money to go buy land. You can lease land, which you found out, and you note that you, you took out a local online classified saying in search of pasture, and you got this property three miles away from your house, and it's costing you a whopping $20 an acre per year. Ground near me goes for up to 150 bucks an acre. You got to steal. You got to steal. 21 acres, 20 bucks a year. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that's not very much money. So great job there. Hey, hope this was helpful. Check out the podcast. Check out grassfedlife.co. Check out all the resources we have out there. Tons and tons of content, tons of free content, the free mini course. We've got paid-for resources. Check out the homesteading chicken and pig courses, a whopping 39 bucks. And if you support the TSP MSB, you get a 15% discount on any of those courses. As always, if you've got a question for me that I can answer in one of these short segments, shoot it to me, Darby at grassfedlife.co. Again, Chris, thanks for sending this in, man. Hope you found this helpful. Keep them coming, guys. I appreciate them. Uh, enjoy answering these. As always, have a great week. Make the most of it, and take care. Okay, before I introduce our next uh, expert council member and his question, I just listening to that made me think of a story that has nothing to do with pasture or landscapes or permaculture or grazing or any of that. But just he said, he said you got to steal. You stole that that lease on that price. One time, my wife and I were flying from Arkansas to North Carolina. I don't even remember why. I think it was for a prepper expo or something like that. And we got a pilot that sounded like that gone Ricky Bobby from Talladega Nights. And we got delayed by about 45 minutes. And it's not that long of a flight. So that's a that's significant to try to make up, you know, maybe running a little faster than you're supposed to or getting up in, in some jet stream or something and letting it work for you. But the pilot comes on and he says, well, guys, I'm sorry they delayed us like they did, but we're going to take off, and we're going to fly this thing like we stole it, and I'm going to try to get you there on time. And he made up about a good 70% of the time. And uh, there was a mixture of looks from people on the plane. There were people like me and Dorothy like, yeah, I like this guy. And there were people like, oh, no, about this plane. Maybe it's missing its phalange. little pop culture breadcrumb for you. Anyway, moving on to something totally different. What do you do? If you have a genetic disposition for high cholesterol and due to it a history of heart disease in your family, Dr. Ken Berry weighs in on that right now. Hello, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry, family physician, answering a listener's question today. This question comes from Blake. The question is, what do I do regarding the keto diet if I have genetically high cholesterol? This is usually known as familial hypercholesterolemia, and the average doctor will scare you to death about FH. We're going to abbreviate it for time, and they'll say if you don't take a statin like Zocor, Crestor, Lipitor, then you have a death wish because you're going to die young. Um, so uh, let's see. Blake is 37 years old. He's a male. He's 5'11". He's 175 pounds and has a strong his family history of heart problems, which I would expect. Every male in my family has heart problems. My dad's first heart attack was when he was 39 years old, uh, and he's had three so far, which he survived. He does not eat a healthy diet, though, and, and uh, has a very stressful job. My grandfather died at 72 while undergoing quadruple bypass. I would not count your grandfather as a family history because he's over 70. So it's very common for people in their 70s to have heart attacks. But he's the oldest living male that I know of for generations. So let's say that you have familial hypercholesterolemia. Uh, let's see. Blake's last lab work was he had a total cholesterol of 265 
which is over 200. That's considered high. His triglycerides are 69, which is beautiful. His LDL cholesterol was 208, which would be considered quite high. And then his HDL cholesterol is 43, which is a little on the low side. Uh, he's taking statins now currently, I think, and he's gotten his total cholesterol down to 150. Triglycerides are 73, which is great. His LDL's down to 98, and his HDL is actually lower, down to 37. So uh, familial hypercholesterolemia is a very complicated thing, and many doctors misunderstand it. There's a guy I want you to look for on YouTube. His name is Dr. David Diamond, just like the diamond in your ring. He is a Ph.D. researcher, and he spent his entire career investigating cholesterol and FH. And you need to watch every video he has about familial hypercholesterolemia. People who have that do tend to die earlier of heart disease. But you have to remember all of these people are eating a high-carb, junk food-filled diet. None of these people have been eating a keto or a carnivore diet. So obviously you can't blame it on keto, but, but your question is if I eat keto, my, my LDL and my total cholesterol might go up. That's true. They might. In about a third of cases, they do go up. In about a third of cases, they stay the same. In about one third of cases, they go down. So there's no guarantee that by eating a keto diet that your total cholesterol and your LDL cholesterol are going to go up. So just keep that in mind. Secondly, your HDL at 37 is very low. That worries me a lot. Uh, the way you're going to get that up is to eat more fatty meat and to lift heavy weights. You really want that HDL to be 45 or above for you, maybe even 50 or above if you can get it there. But you've got to eat fatty meat and you've got to lift heavy weights to get that up. Uh, the, when you look at the research without the lipid high, heart hypothesis, uh, rose-colored glasses on, you quickly realize that it's not the cholesterol that's killing these people. It's the it's the high blood sugar and the high A1C and the high levels of inflammation that go along with that. And so in my opinion and in Dr. Diamond's educated opinion, eating a low-carb diet is absolutely the diet that someone with, with FH should eat. There, and there's really no exception to that. But check out Dr. David Diamond's videos, and that'll help you understand greatly. He goes in depth into the research that your doctor is, is referencing and also misunderstanding about your condition. Hope this helps, Blake. This is Dr. Barry. See you next time. So with that, let's talk about uh, the question I've chosen for myself this year. This comes from Dr. John. And he says, this year I kept my, my greenhouse going all winter, no small feet in North Dakota. I've never gone through a dormancy period. Is this a requirement, or can I just keep rocking with these uh, instead uh, plants instead of starting new seeds? All my greens, like kale, collards, and chard, just keep producing. My lanacido kale is four foot tall, and I call them Dakota palm trees. I also cut back the cabbage at the soil level, and they've resprouted too. Am I going to get another harvest? And I wasn't quite sure because if you have a plant that's still producing, well, just let it produce. So I said, can you give me a little clarity? He said, can some plants perpetually keep producing a climate-controlled environment or far enough south without a freeze, or do they have a lifespan regardless and should be replanted every year? Okay, the, now I understand the question. And I'm going to say that, that the actual question is, do these plants have a lifespan and do they need to be replanted every year? Those are not the same thing. Those are not the same thing. Every plant has a lifespan. Every plant has a lifespan. And every plant has a lifespan that it will basically follow in a natural climate for where it is endemic, where it naturally grows. And some plants can have that lifespan extended through certain techniques, all of it with limitation, some of it with incredibly long periods before limitation. So if we go to something that's a natural perennial, like hazelnuts, and a hazelnut uh, bush tree, call it what you want to, because it's kind of like in between, will have a natural lifespan of somewhere around 25 to 100 years, depending on the variety, the climate, etc. But there are hazelnut compass systems that are over a thousand years old because coppicing is one method that we can use 
to cause plants to extend their lives. But that's perennial. Dr. John's talking about annuals, except he's not. Most of the plants that he's describing are biannuals. And what that means is usually that plant will produce... Now, cabbage is a different story, but most of your brassicas, uh, like your collards and, and things like that, uh, these plants tend to be biannual. Chard is a biannual. Beets, in general, are biannuals. And what that means is that they will grow a season as a leaf crop, and they'll either die back or make it through their winter, and then they'll have a leaf form change. So the leaf will actually change somewhat in form, and it will send up some sort of a seed stem with flowers. It'll flower and it'll produce seed. Uh, parsley is an herb that's a biannual. Carrot is basically in the parsley family and will do the same thing. However, some of these plants, when continuously harvested and kept in a state of not going through enough of a cold cycle, can go on, and I, the answer to how long is, I don't know. And so I think it would be a good idea, if these are plants that you generally use the production of, to plant some new crop each year, but that doesn't mean to, to, to destroy or stop using your old crop. And things can happen that change the calculus on this. I had, up until a couple days, you know, 10 days ago, Swiss chard, Growing outside in my climate, having gone below freezing multiple times, that was three years old and still producing. The dadgone root around at the bottom, because it's basically a, a funky beet that no one would eat, right? A funky beet that no one would eat, right? And um, like just like multiple, you know, um, secondary roots springing off it like a tree, and growing all this chart. And, and fortunately, I had actually pulled some of those uh, like daughter plants, I guess you'd call them. And I've never heard of anybody producing Swiss chard from division, but I can tell you it works. I'd pulled them and brought them inside to some of my um, aquaponic systems indoors and, and put them in there. Now they're out in my garden. I kind of knew this frost was coming. And it, the, the, the two great blurries below zero killed them. Now, we had gotten well below freezing, and chard should have gone to seed. And some of my chard variety, like Ford Hork Giant, did go to seed in its second season. But the things like uh, the, the ruby red and the orange and the yellows had, had made it for multiple seasons. How long can you do that? I don't know. Additionally, a lot of plants that we think of as annuals are actually short-lived perennials. What is a short-lived perennial? Five to ten years would be considered a short-lived perennial. The most famous one of all, as far as just people being aware of the plant existing, that's a short-term perennial that is grown as an annual in North America, most North America anyway, is a pepper plant. Peppers are a bush. They are not an annual plant. If you live in a subtropic to tropic climate where we don't ever go below freezing, or if you get a frost, it's light frost, like high desert light frost or whatever, and you grow peppers, they grow and produce year-round. So peppers can actually be dug up, or if they're in a container, the container can be brought in. And the best practice is to really prune them heavily. They can be brought in, overwintered, and set back out, and they will rock right on for you. So the answer is, I don't know. Now, the Lanacinto kale and other kale varieties, I've done this myself, and I, the only reason I actually got rid of the one that I was growing, kind of like he's talking about four foot tall, was because I had a... It was in an aquaponics system that had to go. Like it, I was like, I want to take this down. And I had this, this stem almost as big as my wrist. The only thing I could say about kale is as that big stem grows, and it kind of goes into like, you, you feel like you're in a perennial production with kale, I have noticed that the leaves get smaller as you go, and they don't come back lower on the stalk. So you end up with this bare stalk with it, and I think that there is a, a finite limit to that. But it's probably a couple seasons. Collards, I'm not a big collards guy, so I really haven't had any direct experience. I've grown broccoli, and I lost it in this freeze. I had broccoli in its second season. It, you know, it made broccoli heads, and then it made secondary shoots, and then the summer came, and it got all sad. And I think if I had just left it, because I've done that year after year, it would have died. I cut it way back, 
And I just left the roots with the thought it will die and the roots will rot in the soil. I had six of them. Four of the six lived and they were producing new broccoli heads two weeks ago. And little bitty ones, you know, were just starting to form. Nick Ferguson ate one. I let them do it because I'm like, they're going to die. As cold hardy as broccoli is, it ain't going to handle zero degrees, and it didn't. But so I think there's a lot of plants that we can experiment with this, but the exact duration is debatable. I've seen videos specifically with Swiss chard um, and broccolis and kales and things like that in greenhouse environments that are three or four seasons old. So I think, John, if you've got them through a winter in friggin' North Dakota, um, just keep going. But have some new plants in reserve. That's the approach that I would take. Love to hear from any of y'all that have done this um, and other plants you've done it with, uh, like the ones that we've talked about here today. And uh, with that, we've wrapped up another episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Please remember, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can always help us out by joining the Members Support Brigade. All you got to do that is go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members. Once you sign up and join the Members Support Brigade, you can log into your private members area. And there's some extra content and stuff there, but the big thing is discounts. And if you click on benefits, you'll see all the companies that do discounts and the discounts they offer. I promise you, if you listen to this show regularly, you're buying enough stuff over a year that if you were using those discounts, you'd get every penny that you spent on your membership back. I hear from people weekly, I just got 100% of my membership back with one order or two orders from fill in a blank over and over and over again. So I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And I really appreciate those of you who are members, and it is the number one way we, as they say, keep the lights on around here. Next up today, remember, you can always also support us simply by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Like, you're going to buy something online. You go to tspaz.com and start there. No matter what you buy, you help support our show. On that note, I also do reviews, and today's item of the day is one I've brought to you a bunch of times. And I will bring it to you a bunch more until somebody makes a better version thereof. They're made by a company called Monoprice, and they're releasable cable ties, also known as zip ties. So these are your nylon zip ties, you know, you call them cable ties, people use them for wire management and things like that. Um, but they have a little tab on them. And so you zip tied something and you want to take it off. You push the tab and it's released and reusable. A hundred of them is like six bucks and a little bit of change. Six bucks and some pocket change. And I want you to think about the fact that connecting things together is one of the things that in kind of the self-sufficiency mindset we would, we would just refer to in general as cordage is one of the most difficult and time-consuming things to fabricate. These are strong. If you need, and These are six-inch ones. They make some longer ones and all. I buy the six-inch ones because they're small and they fit in places and do most of what I need. And if I need a longer one, I can just put two together. Right? Um, I've used them for so many things. I remember one time a buddy of mine in the Army threw us the keys to his truck, and then when we got back, he said, I should have told you all to go slow. He actually fixed a freaking broken tie rod with tie rods. I don't recommend that, but it tells you how MacGyver-like versatile the damn things are. I've used them to make temporary caging. I've used them to uh, hold, like, Yankee gates closed. I've used, if you can think of it, I've used them. They are, like, one of the most versatile tools a homesteader can have, and at 6 bucks a 100 they're great. They're black, so they hold up better in UV than white cable ties do. They will still get brittle and eventually crack after a season or three. Um, probably less for most of y'all. The heat is the, and the sun in the UV is the main thing that breaks them down. But, man, I'll tell you, there's, there's no reason to not have some of these around. Um, and I make bundles up, about 30. And then you take one and you wrap it around it and you use it to hold the other ones together. We used to do that when we did cabling work. Of course, that one that you did that with was ruined. Because you had to, you know, when you were done, you couldn't use it anymore. With this, the, even the one that's the holding one is, is reusable. And man, throw a bundle of these in the glove boxes of your vehicles. Throw a bundle of these in your go bag or your bug out bag. And have some in your shop, in your garage or whatever. Because these are one of those things that like, you don't even realize how much you can do with them until like you have them and you're like, oh, I need to, oh wait, I can use this. Um, I use them for putting shade netting on my aviary, and that way when I want to take it off, I just pop them off. Again, this is one of those things that's too versatile and too cheap. You need them in your life. 
And yes, they're great for wire management and stuff like that. Except I have some Velcro ones that I also recommend. You can find at T-SPAS. And I think for computer cabling and behind the TV set stuff and stuff like that, I actually think the Velcro ones, Velcro ones work a little bit better for that. All right, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day today. It's Friday. We're going to rock it out. We're not going to have any deep, meaningful, soulful messages in today's song of the day. We're just going to rock ass 80 style. ACDC, who made who? And with that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. <laughs>